0: I had a little bit selfish motive from ending, ending the discussion time and the fellowship time, uh, because I'm David asked me to give a lesson today. He's off somewhere, I believe. He's at a, a wedding of one of his relatives, and uh, and so I figured the the sooner I closed off the uh, the discussion time, the more time I had. Um, I there is so much in scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament that applies to the subject we're gonna be talking about and I was cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting all week um, just to get it down to the time that we wanna spend because I don't like, I don't like keeping you here too long because I know I lose your interest when I do that. So anyway, there's an interesting passage in the Old Testament that kind of describes an Old Testament worship service. So I thought it'd be interesting to just take a look at that and see how that compares to what we do today. Well it began by the people building, this takes place in Jerusalem incidentally, uh, not too long after the, the Jews had come back from their captivity in Babylon. And so Jerusalem was a small city, they had just finished building the wall around the city under Governor Nehemiah. And uh, so there were probably about 4,000 people in the city and the surrounding villages, but they built this huge wooden tower. And on this wooden tower, the priest, Ezra, stood up there so that all of these people could see. And they said there were men gathered, there were women gathered, which would be unusual. And And it has the phrase, and anybody else who could understand the law. And so that implies there were children there as well. Anybody who could understand the law was there. So it was a big crowd. And when Ezra came forward and he held up the law, the word of God, it was probably what we call the book of Deuteronomy, all the people stood up. And Ezra began to read the law from start to finish. It said it took them probably around six hours to do so. So they were standing for six hours listening to the law. Now the law was written in the Hebrew language. But when the Israelites became captives in Babylon, they kind of lost the use of the Israelite language. They were there probably two, three generations. And in that time, a lot of the people who were born in Babylon only spoke Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonian Empire. And so they really didn't understand the Hebrew. And so the Levites scattered themselves out amongst the crowd and started explaining to the people what the Hebrew scriptures meant so that they could understand it. And when it was all over, Governor Nehemiah came up onto the platform and he looked out at all the people and they were weeping. The people were weeping because they had heard the law of God for the first time. And they understood some of the consequences of their past sins. That the whole episode in Babylon was because people kept turning away from God. And, but when you read the law of God, you're so impressed, not just by the punishment, but by the love that God had for his people and the patience he held. And these people were just all weeping. And Nehemiah said to them, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drink and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That kind of brings us to our theme for today. Uh, We're continuing our study in in the Gospel of Luke and we're looking at the first five verses of chapter 6. And the theme that comes out of these five verses is, has your faith become a burden? Has the joy disappeared from your faith? Are you just going through the motions? Maybe you're struggling with things in, in your life. Maybe your experience in the church isn't what it should be because it's a burden. Is your, maybe your church life is competing with your home life, with your job, with your finances, with your play. Maybe there are people in church that you just struggle getting along with and it just robs you of the joy that ought to be there. Maybe you feel that, that the leaders of the church <coughs> are requiring too much of you. Maybe you've gotten involved in some kind of ministry and it's not right for you and you're stuck there and you feel like the only way you can get out of this is by leaving the church. Has the joy disappeared from our faith? It's something I think we all struggle with. I struggle with it personally, and there's so much in this lesson that speaks to me, which is why I'm trying to base all of this not on my opinions, but on what scripture says, because I need to hear what God says on this, not what I, not my own opinion. So anyway, we're going to explore this, and hopefully by the end we'll receive some good practical things that we can do to restore the joy to our faith, to leave the burden behind, because that's not the way our faith is supposed to be. In Matthew 11:28 28 to 30, Jesus says this, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's pretty attractive, isn't it? But just like the Jews in his day, and many, many churches in our day, we somehow are not reflecting that easy yoke and that light burden. We're not getting the rest that we need, and our joy is gone. So let's take a look at our passage for today. In Matthew this story is is found as well and it's right after that quote from Jesus that I just read you. So there's a connection there. Now in Luke it follows from what David taught on last week about how God through Jesus is bringing something new and if we cling too tightly to the past we may miss the new things that God is bringing us. But here's the passage. Oh, incidentally, this is the very first time in the Gospels that Jesus and the Pharisees are kind of clashing over the issue of the Sabbath. This is the first one of those confrontations. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now I don't know if you noticed or not in just reading through this, but the second half of this where Jesus is explaining about David doesn't seem to connect well to the Sabbath. There's a connection, but we'll have to get there. Let's take a closer look at the passage and see what's really going on here under the surface. It begins, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. So it's interesting, Jesus was walking through the grain field. He wasn't walking down the road, but we don't know why, but he chose to take a shortcut across somebody's property. Now, there wasn't anything wrong with that in that that particular culture. The disciples were hungry. And so they picked some grain from the field as they were walking through. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Old Testament allows for that and said, if you're hungry, you don't have any food, you can go and pick some food from somebody's field or pick some fruit off of somebody's tree as long as you don't harvest any and take it home because that would be stealing. So they were hungry and they were following the rules for gathering the food except that it was the Sabbath The Sabbath was part of the covenant that God made with Israel. And I think in order to understand this and get to the point of our faith being a burden, we need to understand something about the Sabbath. What God, how God defines the Sabbath. And it, it first appears as part of the covenant that God was making with Israel. He had just brought them out of Egypt where they were slaves. Now he was... He was taking them to, the new, to a new land where they would become a nation and he would rule over them. He would be their God and they would be his people and it would be wonderful. And so God was making a covenant with them. I'm going to do this for you. And his promises were incredible. And you will do this in obedience to me. And part of that was the Sabbath. It's found in the Ten Commandments, but he explains it in greater detail later in the book of Exodus. Here's here's what he says in Exodus 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. There's two significant things here. One is it's a sign. It's not just some ritual or some rule that they have to follow, it's a sign. It's something that is going to teach them about their relationship with God. And that's the primary reason God commanded that they, that they follow it. <clears throat> Second, <clears throat> it's so that they would know that he is the Lord and he is the one who makes us holy. That's really significant because the people thought we have to obey the laws and do this and do that to be holy, but God is saying long before the Gospels appeared, I am going to make you holy. I'm gonna do the work to make you holy. I'm going to accomplish that in you, whether you deserve it or not. It's the Gospel of grace, and it's found almost 1,400 years before the gospel appeared on the earth. Of course, that's also true of most aspects of the gospel. If you know where to look, you can find them, clearly explained in the Old Testament. So two things. Number one, it's a sign. And number two, they were supposed to learn that God is the one who makes us holy. It's not our job, it's his job. The passage goes on, observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. Whoa, did you catch that? This has suddenly gotten very, very serious, hasn't it? If you don't. If you desecrate the Sabbath, if you do something to ruin the Sabbath, not just for you but for other people, you're supposed to be put to death. That's pretty serious. This is how important this lesson is to God. It says, for six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of of rest, holy to the Lord. When God labels something as holy, what he means is that this is pure good. There's nothing untainted about it. And if you bring your evil, if you bring your sin, your rebellion into the Sabbath, you've done something really serious because I've given you something incredible here. And finally, the passage goes on to say, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It was to be a celebration. It wasn't something that people were, do, were supposed to do because they just had to be obedient. It wasn't something that was going to make them suffer. It was something that was supposed to bring them joy. Perfect example comes before the Ten Commandments had been given, before the the covenant was made between the Israelites and God, God started giving them manna because they'd been complaining. They'd had plenty of food in Egypt, and now they were out in the wilderness, and they didn't have anything good to eat, and so they were complaining. And as a gift, God sent them manna, which was a little flake-like substance that would come every morning. They'd wake up, and it was there, and they'd go out (coughs) and collect it. Excuse me. But they were only supposed to collect enough for that one day. They had to trust God's promise that every day He would send it. There were some people who got tired of collecting it every day. They said, Man, I bet if I collect twice as much today, then I can just. Rest tomorrow morning. I, don't, I can take tomorrow morning off. I won't have to go out there. But when they did that and they woke up the next morning to get the manna they'd collected the day before, it was rotten and it was filled with worms. And they looked outside and there were the people who trusted God. Oh, that, that won't. No, nope. I have to talk through it. But thank you so much for thinking about that. Um, And so they learned they needed to trust God when he said, you have to go out every morning and collect the manna. But then God told them, on the, seventh, on the sixth day, I'm gonna give you manna and you can collect twice as much because I don't want you to give, have to collect the manna on the seventh day because I love you and I know you get tired of doing it every day so I'm gonna give you a day off. And so, sure enough, on the seventh day, there was no manna, and the people who didn't trust what God said and went out to collect it, they didn't get any breakfast that morning. But the people who trusted God got to sleep in because he gave them that special gift. And that's what the Sabbath was supposed to be for. It wasn't something that was supposed to be a burden in any way but was to be a joyful celebration. Now, there's a reason for the celebration. First of all, God wants his people to enjoy their lives. Um, There's a passage in one of Paul's letters that says, he gives you everything for your pleasure. He wants us to find pleasure in life. He wants us to enjoy ourselves. And he wanted the Sabbath to be a joyous time for for the Israelites. But the second thing was, All the other nations, they were working seven days a week because you had to work all seven days in order to make enough to support your family, unless you were rich. Um, But most people, they had to work seven days a week to get what they needed. And God is saying to the Israelites, I am going to bless you more in six days of work than all those people in the surrounding nations can get in seven days. And God wanted the Israelites to celebrate on the Sabbath so that the surrounding nations will see this and say, what's the deal here? They don't have to work all seven days like we do. They're working six days and they're getting more from it. Their God must be really powerful. Because you see, God was never the God of Israel. He was the God of the world. Made the heavens and the earth. And he loved the people in the entire world. And he wanted them to place their trust in him. And there were always ways, even in the, the uh, Old Testament, that people could come to know the Lord and find him if they just wanted to seek him out. So, anyway, we come down to the time of Jesus. And during that time, about 1,400 years worth, well, actually, Yeah, about 1400 years worth. The Israelites often they ignored the Sabbath, they ignored other rules and they rebelled against God and finally God had to send them into captivity. He brought them home and when they came out they realized that all this suffering that they'd gone through was because they had rebelled against God, they ignored what he said and so they really wanted people to obey God's laws. Now the people still struggled, even after that time with the service with Nehemiah and Ezra, they still struggled with the Sabbath and with the other laws. But the leaders started doing things because they wanted to protect the people from God's wrath, from God's punishment. And so they started inventing rules to help them. And somewhere in that time, the the Pharisees, were formed and and they embodied the rules that were built up and more and more rules were built up. They they had rules and people just still didn't obey God. And so they'd invent more rules so that they they to force them to obey God and they still couldn't. Um, in fact, the rules for the Sabbath, there were more There was more discussion among the rabbis about the Sabbath than any other issue in the Jewish life. And they had rule after rule after rule after rule. There were even rules to force people to make the Sabbath a delight. They said, if you were righteous enough during the six days of the week, you could... Wear these special clothes so everyone can see how righteous you were. If you were righteous enough, you would get to eat special food on the Sabbath. If you were righteous enough, there are special good deeds that only you can do so that everybody can see that you were keeping the Sabbath rules. They saw the disciples out in the field picking picking the grains of wheat and rubbing, rubbing the, the chaff and the outer part, so they could get to the, the food part inside. And they said, your disciples, what are you doing? Doing things, you're breaking the Sabbath. That's not right. This wasn't a real heated confrontation at this point because this was just the first time that they started debating this issue. And they saw that the disciples were actually breaking two separate laws. One, they were harvesting the wheat. They were just picking a few grains for them to eat but that was defined as harvesting and that was against the law on the Sabbath. Plus, they were rubbing the grains so that they could get to the wheat inside and that was against the law too because it was preparing a meal which you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so if you had meals on the Sabbath, you had to prepare them on the day before. And they also had a rule that said you need to make an extra meal on the day before the Sabbath just in case somebody unexpected shows up and you'll have something to feed them. I mean, they, they, they had rules about everything. And Jesus responded to their concern by telling them a story about David. Now, this is a true story. It's found in 1 Samuel. And in the story, David is running for his life because King Saul, who was king at the time, was trying to kill him even though David has been his most faithful and most successful general. And so David was fleeing for his life. He came to the place where the tabernacle was and he talked to the priest. He'd been there before while he was on other missions and talked to the priest and asked him to uh, consult God for the success of his mission. But he says, I'm on a special mission from the king. And uh, do you have anything to eat here? I had to leave so quick I didn't get anything to eat and for the men I'm, I'm going to meet up with. And the priest said, well, we, all we have is, is the bread. See, inside the, the first room of the tabernacle, there was a table. And every week they would put fresh bread there to remind them of, of God's provision. And then they would replace it at the end of the week and then the priests were allowed to eat that bread. But only the priests. But David said, Well, you know, me and my men, we, we, keep, ourselves, we keep ourselves clean. We we don't visit women for 24 hours, or we, we don't do anything like that. We keep ourselves clean. You know that's true about us. And so the priest said, okay, you can have the, these five loaves of bread. But David lied. David ate bread that he wasn't allowed to eat, according to the law. Why did Jesus tell that story to defend his disciples for getting food on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus was aware of all the discussion and debates that went on with uh, the rabbis and the teachers of the law, and he knew that, that they had really struggled at first with the idea that the priests and the Levites, they had to work on the Sabbath. They had duties that God gave them in the temple, and they did it on the Sabbath. And so that was a fairly easy one to figure out. Well, God told them to do it, therefore, that supersedes the provisions of the law. So the priests and the Levites were allowed to work on the Sabbath. But what about David? Well, this bothered the the Jewish leaders as well because David was one of the most admired people in the Old Testament, he was the greatest king of Israel, so great that the Messiah was gonna be born from his line and one day God promised that David will rule again over you. So how do we make it okay for him to lie and eat food that he's not supposed to eat? Well, they just jumped to the conclusion that David was on a mission from God, even though the text in 1 Samuel doesn't say that. You could stretch it and say, well, God was certainly protecting David because he had already promised that David was going to be the next king after King Saul. And so God was using this to help David escape for his life. And so we're gonna say then that David was on a mission from God. And that makes it okay. And then Jesus follows up with these words. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man was a word that was sometimes used to refer to the Messiah. And in this context, they all knew he was referring to himself that way. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. If my disciples are following me, they're kind of on a mission from God, aren't they? They're kind of doing what God wants them to do. So if they're hungry and we're walking through a field and they're following me, and the reason they're hungry is because they're following me, it's okay. They don't have to worry about those Sabbath rules. That's what he was saying. It was given permission. Now eventually, as Jesus went to the cross and he rose from the dead and then the Holy Spirit came and created the church, the Sabbath laws became something that kind of fell by the wayside. In the New Testament, there are several places that refer to the Sabbath as things we are not required to follow. Um, Romans 14 talks about the person who has one day, gives one day to the Lord, is the same as the person who decides to give every day to the Lord and treat every day the same. And you're not supposed to judge each other, let each person do what he feels is the right thing to do. But the bigger problem was the Sabbath was part of this pattern that the religious leaders did where they were oppressing their own people. See, here's where the Pharisees went wrong. First, they thought that God's goal was to get people to obey the laws. That's not God's goal at all. God's purpose is not to get us to obey the law or to live a good life. His purpose is for us to have a very real relationship with Him. He told the Israelites way back in the Old Testament that I want to dwell with you as your God and protect you and provide for you. And I want you to talk with me and enjoy me and not be afraid of my presence. It wasn't to obey the laws, the laws were just a means to an end. The Pharisees thought it was possible to obey the law. That's not true. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. There are numerous other passages in the Old Testament that told him everybody sins, everybody, because the law can't be obeyed. It's too hard. But they said, no, you can obey the law. And they did this by focusing on the outward sins, things that people could see. And they just didn't do those. And they did outward deeds. They, they would give to the charities. They would um, travel to uh, recruit somebody and help them become a Jew. And they would, they would do all kinds of things to, on the outside to show that they were keeping the law. But it was hard. Because no matter how they tried, Other people, the common people of the land, just couldn't do it. In fact, in Jesus' day, the uh, Jewish population was divided into two classes of people. One were called the righteous. And there were a lot of people that people, he's one of the righteous, because they could see the good deeds that they're doing. The other class of people were called the sinners. Not necessarily because they were out committing sins or were evil people, but because they had given up trying to obey the law. They might have tried and they couldn't do it, so they just gave up. It didn't mean that their faith wasn't there because it's very interesting that the righteous people who were supposedly obeying the law, they were the ones who were most resistant to Jesus when he came. They were the ones that were most hostile to him and of course they were the ones who ended up wanting to kill him. But the common people, the sinners who had given up trying to obey the law, when they saw Jesus, many, many of them, they opened up their lives to them. They saw that he cared for them and they became, many of them became believers. God has a much different view of the law than man does. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, it's really easy to pretend that we are righteous, that we are all just doing all the good things, because we can hide a lot of the things that goes on in our hearts. Jesus described the the Pharisees in one place as a whitewashed tomb. On the outside it looked pretty because it was all painted, but on the inside it was filled with bones and rotting flesh. Because that's what the inside of our heart looks like. He said, it's not what goes into a person, like eating the wrong foods or something like that, that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of the mouth. And he's talking about their language and their words because those are a product of the heart. And that's the one way you can tell what a person's heart is like by listening to what they say in private. Now, God didn't hide this from the Old Testament Israelites. Here's what he says in a couple passages. This is from Isaiah chapter 1. He says, I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Your hands are, excuse me, full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what's right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And a similar passage in the book of Micah. And Micah is speaking here to the people that he's speaking to. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And that's a reference to the fact that at the time Micah was prophesying, there was a practice that had come into the land of Israel from some of the idols of surrounding nations in which they could please their God by taking their firstborn child and burning him alive in the fire. God said of that, it makes him want to vomit but that's what they were doing. And so Micah goes on to say, he has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's not about obeying the law. It's about changing our character. Now, there's two covenants in scripture. The old covenant is what the law created. It was limited to the people of Israel. If people in other nations wanted to come under this covenant and the promises it contained, they had to become Israelites. It was behavior based. It was the things you do that mattered. It was designed to counteract the sin nature. When God created the sacrificial system and the feasts and festivals and a lot of other things, he was doing this because he knew that people had a nature to sin. It was their nature to sin, and he did everything he could to help them to turn from their sins and start trusting him for their salvation. The first covenant was only effective when the consequences were enforced. You had to have punishment. If they had a law against shoplifting, which they do, but there was never any prosecution, never any punishment for it, how successful do you think it would be? How much merchandise do you think stores would lose from shoplifting if if there was no punishment? (laughs) Stores would be going broke. Because the law isn't effective without punishment. And of course we know that ultimately the wages of sin, breaking the law, is death. The first covenant only produced fear and a lifelong burden of guilt. They were, the biggest problem the Israelites had was they were afraid of God because he knew he was, uh, he punished sin. And they didn't really understand how God was taking care of their sin to make them clean so that they could have fellowship with him. So instead, they just stayed away from him, which is why they kept worshiping in other places rather than coming to the temple. That's why the hills were filled with altars and idols. Not just to, to not just to idols, but statues to represent God because people were afraid of God and they felt terribly, terribly guilty of their sin. But God promised that he was going to bring a new covenant. In Jeremiah, he says, this is the covenant I will make, future tense, with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write on on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The new covenant was for everyone. It was character based. It is character based, not behavior based. It's based on God's character, and so it never changes. The Old Testament law, God has changed it on numerous occasions, uh, particularly in the New Testament. There's many parts of that law that God just says, that's not the law anymore, it doesn't apply to you. Um, the new covenant requires a change of heart yes we have a sin nature and yes we have this propensity to sin but God wants to change our hearts and he says I will do it I will make you holy I will change your heart if you just let me and it only has one command you know that? Our faith, there's only one command, although the New Testament in several places teaches that if we just follow this one command, we'll be keeping all the other laws. So all we have to do is focus on that one command, and that command is love one another. In John 15, it says this, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Here we'll start to talk about how we can find joy in our lives, in our faith. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And I know there are at least three places in the New Testament that were taught that if we just love one another, we'll be keeping all the commands. Now the law is good, but we need to understand its purpose. A lot of people feel like, well okay, the law has been taken care of, it no longer applies to us, and that's just not true. There are good things about the Old Testament law that we need uh, to bring into our lives, because it's the Old Testament law that teaches us that we will always fall short of God's standards. No matter how hard we try, we will fall short. And the law tells us that because it tells us you need to do this and oh man, I can't do that or I can't do this. I tell lies, I think bad thoughts, I do all kinds of things I shouldn't. The law also teaches us that we need God's help and we need to study that law to see how God was there to help the Old Testament Israelites and he's there that same way to help us. So it's important, there's much to learn from the law. Paul says in in Galatians, the law is a guardian to us to protect us until we understand what it means to be a son or daughter of God. Imagine your five-year-old child. How many rules do you have for that child? A lot, because you know, if you said to your five-year-old, you can do anything you want to do he probably wouldn't live very long. We know that, that's that's a no-brainer. Well, when we become believers, we don't yet know a lot of the things God wants us to do. We're at the beginning of that process of having our hearts changed and molded. And so we need the law, the rules, to teach us what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. And so we, we need the law. Now, imagine that five-year-old child. When that child grows up and is in his 20s, that's a wonderful time for parents because they're adult children. Sure, sometimes they get into trouble and so on, but they're on more of an equal level with you. And it's the most wonderful thing when you become best friends with your adult child. And I I think most parents really want that to happen and that's one of the reasons they teach their children and give their children rules as they grow up. But the older they get, a lot of those rules start to vanish because they don't need them anymore. They know you don't play in the street. They know you don't put your hand on the hot burner or poke things into the electrical outlet. So they don't need those rules anymore. And as they get older, and pretty soon they're adults, And they're free from the rules because now they're making their own decisions and if your teaching has been effective, they're making their decisions based on the wisdom that you've passed along. Now there's two problems here that create burdens for people and this is where an awful lot of the burden that we feel comes from. One is called legalism. This is works without faith. I'm doing all the right things because I have to. And too often, A lot of churches, a lot of pastors, because they love their people and don't want them to do things that will have terrible consequences, they start giving them rules and laws. I grew up in a church where we weren't allowed to wear makeup, we weren't allowed to play cards. Not that cards were bad, but cards could lead eventually to an addiction to gambling, and so you want to stay away from them in the first place. You couldn't dance, you couldn't uh, do this, or you couldn't do that, and there are just all kinds of rules that we, had, we were taught to follow. But it's not good. Those rules don't work, and all they do is make the person under those rules feel oppressed. In, in Colossians... Um, Paul is writing, he's referring to rules that are are made to prevent sin. For instance, uh, when I was a kid, you don't dance because in dancing you're exposed to all kinds of temptations and things like that. So dancing was that rule was set up so that we won't fall into those temptations. Of course those temptations were everywhere else as well and, and it really didn't solve anything. So that's the kind of Rules that Paul is talking about here. He says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence now the the church at, at uh, Galatia in the province of Galatia uh, they became believers when Paul was traveling and he became sick and he had to stop in one of the towns of, Gal- of Galatia and some people there just took him in and took care of him and mended him until he got better But in the process, he shared the gospel with them and many of those people became believers and they were filled with joy and they had joyful gatherings together and it was really a wonderful thing. But after Paul had left, some believers from Jerusalem, some Jewish believers came in and said, okay, now that you're believers, you're gonna have to be circumcised because you have to become Jewish in order to be saved. And so they... And, of course, circumcision was only the beginning of a whole series of rules that the Jews were expected to follow because of the Old Testament law. And Paul hears about this, and he writes a letter, and that letter is the, the book of Galatians. And in the letter he says, what happened to the joy the joy that they had 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 disappeared because now they they felt they were just doing what they were told to do and they were sincere, but they were taking on the burdens of trying to obey the law. And so he says in this letter, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He says all those rules that are designed to somehow help you they're just imprisoning you and he talks a lot in the book of Galatians about slavery in fact the whole book of Galatians is about what we're talking about right now how bringing the law into our lives bringing this legalism into our lives creates a burden a heavy heavy burden Um, I was going to quote a lot from it but I didn't have time that was one of those things that just had to get cut out but there's another problem not just legalism It's kind of like the drunk who falls off a horse, tries to get back on, and falls off the other side. The other side is something we call license, where people get the idea, okay, okay, we're not supposed to obey the law. Jesus paid the penalty for us. The law says if you do this, you're gonna have this penalty and the penalty is death and Jesus died to take our penalty upon himself so the law no longer has any power over us. It can no longer tell us what to do. It can no longer force us what to do because the penalty is paid. And so the drunk falling off the other side of the horse says, that means we can do whatever we want and you can't tell me that I can't do this or I can't do that because the punishment is paid and I'm not afraid of the rules anymore. I can do whatever I want. That's called license. The license to do whatever you want. Well, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 10, he says, and he's quoting those people here. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, Paul says. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. The problem with license is, it says, I can do whatever I want. And a lot of us know through experience that if we just do the things we want, it's gonna get us into a lot of trouble. It could be addiction, it could be legal trouble, it could be social trouble, trouble in our families, because we're doing what we want, we're not thinking about other people. License creates a heavy, heavy burden, because it's selfish. And God says the only way to get rid of that is to start thinking about other people. That's where you will find freedom. That's where you will find the joy. I want to finish by taking a look at what Paul says we ought to do as Christians. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I just want you to listen to these things. Because every one of these things is not about our behavior. It's about what happens in the heart. And if we follow these things, we'll start rediscovering the joy in our faith. First thing he says... Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. I mean, if you want your faith, you want to lose the joy of your faith, start criticizing your leaders. Start disrespecting the people who work hard among you. There's nothing good that ever comes from that. Because no leader is perfect. And if you criticize them, I'm going to go find another leader. You're going to find something wrong with them too because you've developed a critical spirit. And there's no joy in criticism. Then he says, live in peace with each other. Not just the leaders. We need to live in peace with each other. And this is a key part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Because... Living at peace doesn't mean we let wait for them to be at peace with us. It means I'm in peace with them no matter what they do. We've probably all had experience where somebody said something really offensive to you or somebody did something wrong to you. And of course you know how that makes you feel. Nothing good comes from that. God says let it just roll off you like water off a duck. It's not easy, but when we do that, it's We get rid of a whole lot of stress. And when you take somebody who maybe has something against you and you act at peace with him like you're their best friend, they stop feeling so bad about you. And, you know, in many, many cases, they become your friend. And so by living at peace with people, we're eliminating the stress, we're eliminating the combativeness that happens in those situations that seems to go on and on and on. And we're eliminating those things where we walk into church and we see that person that I just can't stand, and then you're miserable all all morning. Next he says, warn those who are idle. There are a lot of people who, they just show up at church, take it in, maybe enjoy the worship, And then it's over and they leave, and that's pretty much their involvement with the body. They're never going to grow as believers. And remember, when you're immature, we need the law to be our guardian. And uh, that just brings in the burden. You can't really find joy. You don't have the opportunity to share that love with each other, to get to know what it means to be part of a body. He says next, encourage the timid. There are some people who maybe because of what's happened in their life or maybe just the way they're wired or are really shy. And it's hard for them to make friends. It's hard for them to get integrated into the life of the body. It's not because they don't want to, they just can't. Well, it's our job to encourage them. Invite them to lunch, ask them to sit with you. Um, just be friends with them. Help them to get over that timidity by taking the initiative. It says then help the weak. Now there's two kinds of weak I think it's referring to. One are people who are weak spiritually, and we we know that. A lot of times new believers come into our midst and they're struggling with all kinds of temptations into their lives. They haven't learned yet that the patterns that they've grown up with of relating to people are different from the patterns God teaches us. They don't know these things yet, so they're struggling. They're weak in their faith. Help them. Come alongside them. Let them watch how you handle things. Let them be exposed to those new behaviors, the new patterns that God will teach us as he changes our heart. And then there's another kind of weak, and that's people who are just physically weak. Uh, maybe somebody's in a wheelchair. We should never, we should, or we should always make sure that everyone, no matter what their disability is, whether it's mental or physical, that they can come into our body, into our fellowship and participate fully. Because after all, even even the the person that is the hardest to, to relate to, God has brought them here because he's gifted them in some way to make our body life fuller. Be patient with everyone. That has the implication that everyone should be patient with us too. None of us are perfect. And so when people do things they shouldn't do, just be patient. God promises to work in their hearts and to take care of those things. Just like way back when he was giving them the Sabbath, I am the one who makes you holy. He promises that he's going to work in the lives of every one of us, changing our hearts, taking those things that we see that shouldn't be there, and he's gradually, in his own time, he's taking care of those. And so we just need to be patient with people. Next, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always to be kind to each other and to everyone else. We are so quick to want to take revenge. We are so quick at wanting to get back at somebody. But there are numerous places throughout Scripture where God says, vengeance is mine. Sometimes they need vengeance to be paid to them. But I'll do it because I'm a lot smarter than you are and I'm going to do it out of love for them. So let me do it. So no matter how badly you want to call back a name when they call you a name, don't do it no matter how bad you want to hurt them in the same way they hurt you, or to teach them a lesson. Even even if your heart seems like it's good, I I just want them to learn, so I gotta do this. Let God do it, because he promises he will. The next, be joyful always. We've been talking about how our faith should be joyful and that there are a lot of things that rob us of the joy, but joy is a choice. He wouldn't say be joyful always unless we could choose to do that because we can. But we have to focus on the good things, not on the bad things. And the reason you can't find joy is because you're being focused on those bad things. Sometimes they're really hard to take out of our focus and maybe you need uh, to talk with somebody about that. But you can look at the good things and be joyful. Pray continually continually. Now this doesn't mean you sit in a corner and you're 24 hours a day and you're praying and you're praying and and other people look at you and they say, boy, what a weirdo. (laughs) Um, What he's saying is that always be carrying on a conversation with God. Talk with him about things, even about trivial things. You're not distracting him from somebody else's need. God enjoys that because his goal is to dwell with us and to talk with us, that's what he wants. The more we talk with him, the better he likes it. And of course the better we will because we're talking to the creator of the universe and that's pretty cool. Give thanks in all circumstances and then Paul adds these words, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus because this is an important issue. Give thanks in all circumstances. And we go through some really terrible circumstances sometimes, don't we? And it's hard to be thankful, because we're miserable, we're in pain. But God says, even in the worst circumstance you can imagine, there's something there you can be giving thanks for. And this is so important, because you can't be thankful unless you see something to be thankful for. And if God is telling us we should be thankful all the time, it means there's something there all the time in every circumstance that, is, that he's doing for us that's really good. And we just have to look for it. So you know, this is kind of one of the areas that, that God is working on me now is trying to teach me how to always look for the things I can be thankful for so that no matter how frustrated I get, and I get really frustrated and and I get really distracted by what's going on, sometimes it takes work for me. I'm, I'm better than I was, but I've got a ways to go. Give thanks in all circumstances and work on that. It's not easy, and God knows that, but it's his will that you see the good things he's doing in your life and not be distracted by the bad things. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. This can be taken in more than one way. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. In some cases, he's talking about the Holy Spirit is in you and wants to speak through you to somebody else, through your words or through your deeds. And we find excuses. We're putting out his fire. The prophet Jeremiah, one of the greatest men in the Old Testament, and and one of my favorite characters, there was a point where he was suffering so much as a prophet of God, he said, I quit. I'm over and done with, I don't wanna say any more, don't give me any more prophecies, I'm tired of people trying to kill me and trying to torture me, and all these things, I just can't do it anymore. But then he said God's word. It was like a fire in his heart and he just couldn't stop speaking. That's God's spirit. And sometimes he compels us to say things even when we just don't want to. But there's another way that this can be referred to. And, and that is when God's spirit is speaking to you. And he may be speaking through somebody else or speaking through circumstances and we just don't want to listen. We douse the Spirit's fire when we're really missing out on something really good because if he's telling us we need to change in something, it's for our good and we will appreciate it once that change is done. And so don't put out the Spirit's fire if God's Spirit is working, let him work. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Now, God does give some people the gift of prophecy and, and sometimes people have received a word from God for you. And a lot of times, you know, we we seek after that. We want that to happen because it's really pretty cool. It's enjoyable, but we just want to know, what does God want to tell me? And we want somebody to speak that to us. But you know, that's not the only way God prophesies. We have a whole Bible full of words. Every one of those words are prophecies from God. Now of course I'm using the word prophecy not as a prediction of the future, but things that God himself wants to say. When Jeremiah spoke to the people of Israel and he was prophesying, those were God's words coming out of his mouth. When he wrote down those words in the book of Jeremiah, those are still God's words but he was writing it down for people like us who weren't alive when he was here. We have an entire Bible filled with the prophecies of God that are intended for us. And so if we're neglecting our Bibles, why would God send you prophecy any other way since you're probably just gonna neglect that as well? So we need to use our Bible because all scripture is God-breathed. And that the Greek word for breathed is also the word that's used for spirit. It's through all of scripture. is from God's spirit trying to teach us. And then test everything. This is really important. This surprises people a lot of times. God wants you to test things. If, if you receive a word from God, somebody says, so I've received a prophecy, you test it to see whether or not it's really consistent with what God says in scripture. When somebody's standing up here like me right now, test it, because what's coming out of my mouth, hopefully God's behind them, and and hopefully they're accurate, and of course they are when I'm quoting scripture, uh, as long as I'm interpreting it correctly, but I could be wrong in telling you things, because I'm biased for certain things, and so test it. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Ask if you think David misspoke on something. He's human. He makes mistakes. Ask him a question about it. Don't get upset and go, go off. David said this. Well, maybe he was just misunderstood or maybe he just used the wrong words or maybe he just needed to hear you ask the question so he can say, oh, I was wrong on that. Test everything. And not just words from God, but our behaviors. The, the things that people do and the things that people say, the things that you do and the things that you say, test them. Don't be afraid, test them. God wants you to test it all. And then last thing he says, hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. When you find something that's good, you cling to that. Because there's a lot of evil in this world out there. And God is trying to teach us how to avoid it and how to recognize it. But that takes time. It takes time for him to get through our thick skulls sometimes. And, and so when we find something that's really good, hold on to it. And I know there's one thing that's really good, and that's the body of Christ. Because that's the only place where we can love one another. That's the only place where we can find that, that joy that will never fade. I want to read once again the passage we started with. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If your faith is a burden to you today, it doesn't have to be. God doesn't want it to be. And he's given us some information that will help us to change our hearts so that we can find the joy, so that we can just get rid of those things that are causing the burden. And I know sometimes it's not always your fault. Sometimes it's the leaders, it's the church that's at fault because they have been laying the burden on you. But together, we can handle those things and we can confront them and